0: Welcome to Positioning 365, Beyond Seating. I'm Marianne Girardi, your host. I'm a physical therapist and the clinical education specialist here at Ultimate Medical. Today, my co-host is Doug Levine. Doug is a pediatric physical therapist in Austin, Texas, and a member of our clinical advisory board. Our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Shore, and we will be discussing neuromuscular hip displacement and cerebral palsy. Dr. Shore is co director of the Cerebral Palsy and Spasticity Center and the program director of the Pediatric Orthopedic Fellowship Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He is also an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Shore is an active member of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine and the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America. Welcome, Dr. Shore.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Dr. Shore, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in neuromuscular hip displacement?
1: Sure. So I I grew up in, in Toronto, Canada. And I, you know, went to school on the west coast of Canada in Victoria. I didn't really think I wanted to be an, an orthopedic surgeon or a physician. I thought I'd be a marine biologist, but I wasn't very good in physics. I eventually ended up in medical school, and I liked kids, and I liked fixing things. And so I I kind of found my way into orthopedics, and, and then I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in pediatric orthopedics, but I knew I wanted to go to Australia for a year and do a fellowship there. And so it just kind of happened that I got linked in to have the opportunity to do a fellowship with Kerr Graham who is one of the leaders in, in neuromuscular care. And that's kind of how my career began. I went to Australia, met my wife there, who's a pediatric dentist. We both moved back to Boston. I did another fellowship there, and then they asked me to stay on. So I was fortunate to stay on. And, and so that's kind of how how I got to be where I am and been fortunate enough to to pick up the skill of of kind of being a neuromuscular pediatric orthopedic surgeon.
0: Wow, you've been on a lot of continents.
1: Yeah, it's good. I like to travel. And like I said, I wouldn't have met my wife if I hadn't gone to Australia. So I feel very fortunate.
0: I think we're very fortunate to have you with us today. My first question is, what is neuromuscular hip displacement?
1: That's a, that's a good question to start off with. So I think most people, when they hear about hip displacement, think about developmental hip dysplasia. That's a pretty common clinical condition where you're born as a child with a hip that's not really in the socket or or the socket's not well formed, and there's a host of different factors that are related to that, but it's often most common in a child that's the first born child, usually on the left side of the body, and a couple other risk factors are associated with that, but that's called developmental hip dysplasia. And the distinction between that and neuromuscular hip dysplasia is that in neuromuscular hip dysplasia, you're actually born with anatomically normal hips. So your hips in the socket at birth, but over time through a combination of delayed motor milestones, muscle spasticity, and subsequent torsional abnormalities, you develop hip dysplasia, where the hip is slowly migrating out of the socket. So we coined this neuromuscular hip dysplasia Because it's primarily one that develops over time. You're not born with it. And some of the features in terms of where the pathology around the hip are slightly different than what we see in developmental hip dysplasia.
2: So, Dr. Shore, quick question. With the neuromuscular hip dysplasia, are you typically seeing that in more in kids that are non-walkers or more that are, are functional walkers?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Doug. Thank you. So, I think the reality is, is that what we've learned in the literature from large population-based studies is that the dysplasia seems to be more prevalent in those children that are less ambulant. So, if we use the gross motor function classification scale, it's much more common to see neuromuscular hip dysplasia in those children that are GMFCS level four and five who primarily spend their time in a wheelchair. It's important to realize that just because it's more common in that cohort doesn't mean that ambulant children don't get hip dysplasia. So you need to be aware of both groups, basically.
0: What's the prevalence in CP?
1: So the prevalence in, you know, cerebral palsy is the number one physical disability in North America. When I started to do my training, it was about The incidence was three per thousand. And I think that incidence is slightly increasing just as our care of the neonate improves. But it will be the number one physical disability. If you're a healthcare provider, you will definitely see kids with cerebral palsy and adults with cerebral palsy in your clinic and practice.
0: Can the diagnosis cerebral palsy include other diagnoses?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think that it's a good question. So, What happens is that the true definition of cerebral palsy is some form of anoxia or injury to the brain that happens between when the egg and the sperm get together till about two years of life. So at any point along that time, if you have an insult or injury to the brain, you manifest with the features associated with cerebral palsy. But in reality, what we've found over time is we've gotten much better with our diagnoses and our genetic ability to kind of look through DNA. We found that there are many masqueraders for cerebral palsy that may look like CP, but not have the same pathophysiology, but have a genetic cause for cerebral palsy.
2: So just as we've gotten better with the diagnosing, we've been able to tease that out, it seems like for for quite a while that cerebral palsy was kind of more of a catch-all sort of term using those criteria that you were saying. And so now we're kind of able to tease that out a little better.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great description, Doug. I think that it was a diagnosis that was kind of a grab bag or an umbrella term. And I think maybe now we use the term neuromuscular, which maybe is a little bit of a, a broader scope or neuromuscular complex chronic condition is another term that we sometimes will throw around. But I think we've gotten increased precision primarily with labeling or narrowing down the diagnosis of CP and differentiating it from underlying genetic abnormalities which can sometimes look very much like CP.
0: Wow, a lot's changed since I got out of school.
1: So I think with, what happened, Marianne, sorry to cut you off, is that it's you know, okay. we would do an MRI of the brain. And, and during my training, I was told that, you know, like 70% of the time, the MRI of the brain has abnormalities and 30% of the time it's normal. And in the past, we just said 30% of the time it's normal and that's just CP. But now what we often say is that 30% represents probably some other chromosome abnormalities that are going on or some other genetic abnormality that's going on to create this phenotype that's similar to cp i apologize that my uh, calendar went off there
0: is the treatment of those children that 30 percent different than what would be the others
1: sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't just depends because some of those kids they look like cp but they have a progressive condition, which is really not what CP is, right? So the management is sometimes different because of the natural history of the other condition. But some of those conditions, we don't really know what the natural history is. So it's hard to prognosticate. And in those situations, we just do our best and try and manage the patient's symptoms more than anything else.
2: Dr. Short, you were saying in the beginning that with neuromuscular hip dysplasia, it's typically something that develops over time, correct? Like as there's maybe abnormal forces or something that the, the socket and the hip don't fit together well. Correct. What are the kind of specific criteria that you use to diagnose it? Because I'm sure that there's sort of a spectrum of when it's just sort of being watched and when it's more diagnosed as hip dysplasia.
1: I think that's a great suggestion, and sometimes it's really hard. So I think there are some misconceptions associated with neuromuscular hip dysplasia. So one of the first misconceptions is, is that neuromuscular hip dysplasia is related to abnormal muscle tone exclusively, so that it's primarily related to spasticity of the lower extremities, and that if you don't have spasticity or if you have a normal range of motion then you're not going to have neuromuscular hip dysplasia. So it's important to recognize that that's actually probably inaccurate and that you can have neuromuscular hip dysplasia even with a full range of motion. And so it's not all related to the motion. Second, we measure, and as a result of that, really, we measure neuromuscular hip dysplasia by getting an x-ray. And often you need one radiographic view of an anterior-posterior view of a pelvis to help Quantify how much dysplasia a child has. And what we look at on the x ray is what's called the migration percentage, which really is just what percentage of the femoral head is in the socket versus out of the socket. We quantify that as a percentage. And if the migration percentage is greater than 30%, that represents the, a hip that's at risk of further displacement and one that needs to be watched carefully. So that's kind of how we quantify and, and how we, we measure neuromuscular hip dysplasia radiographically.
0: Dr. Shora, are there certain risk factors for developing hip dysplasia, or does every child with CP have the same amount of risk?
1: No, I don't think every child has the same amount of risk. I think, you know, if we go back to some of the previous stuff that we were talking about, I think your risk of experiencing hip dysplasia is directly related to your functional level. So GMFCS level one children who are most limited or most highly active, basically, or least least affected by the disease have a very low rate of hip dysplasia or neuromuscular hip dysplasia, probably less than 10%. And on the opposite side, GMFCS level five children in a population have a risk of neuromuscular hip dysplasia between 80 and 90%. So I think probably the single greatest risk factor you have is related to your gross motor functional level. Other things can help make the hip dysplasia appear worse, like if you have associated scoliosis or pelvic obliquity. But I think the overarching trump card here is the gross motor function classification system level of the child.
2: So I, I think in, in in helping to guide when to intervene with the neuromuscular hip dysplasia, it's probably important to standardize some of these things. And I know that you were one of the authors, uh, both the American Academy for CP and Developmental Medicine Hip Surveillance Care Pathway and the Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeons of North America or POSNA radiographic screening guidelines. Why did you feel that it was important for these to be developed? I
1: think that's a good question, Doug. And I think it's, so the the reality is in North America, we're, well, not necessarily North America. In the United States, I'd say that we're a little bit behind some of our peers in Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Sweden. Because the reality is, if you look at a population of children with cerebral palsy, the overall risk of hip dysplasia, neuromuscular hip dysplasia, is about 33% of a population. So 33% of a population of children with cerebral palsy will have elements of hip dysplasia. And so the challenge is trying to identify which of those kids are most affected and who needs surveillance and treatment. And creating guidelines is really vital because it helps standardize care. Without guidelines in place, providers will just practice the way they think is best. And while that's okay, it creates a tremendous amount of practice variation. And practice variation is not, it's not an efficient way to practice medicine. It drives up the cost and decreases the value for each individual family. And so by creating a standardized surveillance program, both at the AACPDM level as well as at the POSNA level, our goal was to try and help provide information for practitioners so they could understand what would be a reasonable frequency or pathway to get radiographs. What we found was that prior to doing this, when we asked the members of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society, we found that only about 20% of the members were using or following a hip surveillance program. But 90% of the members said if there was a program that they could readily access, they would definitely follow it. So that survey kind of framed framed the question or the goal for us in terms of generating these surveillance pathways because I think providers really wanted it. So that was where the, the clinical need was to generate these.
2: Yeah, it sounds like that definitely filled a, a huge need and a want from the practitioners.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think there's this great body of literature that's shown that hip surveillance is sustainable and effective at preventing hip dislocation. And so, you know, with both of these surveillance pathways, we just leverage the current evidence that's out there to create best practices The pathways are fairly similar. What we did for the POSNA pathway is that we made the guidelines a little more simple or maybe orthopedic centric because most orthopedic surgeons may not have a really strong handle on the nuances of children with cerebral palsy. And because of that, we felt like we had to make it a little bit more simpler for my colleagues so that we could understand and implement Surveillance pathway appropriately.
0: Have you noticed any difference in practice since these were established?
1: Well, I think that locally here in Boston, where I work at Boston Children's, when I first started, we put in a surveillance guidelines, just a local one. And I think that was really helpful because it created a template not so much for orthopedic surgeons to follow, but for neurologists and developmental medicine, pediatricians, and even therapists to know how frequently we should be ordering x-rays on our patients. And so everyone was ordering the same view at the same frequency. And so we were just doing a much better job of keeping track of those patients who were coming to clinic that needed to be screened and followed for their neuromuscular hip dysplasia. So I think that's some of the the early changes that we've seen related to implementation.
0: At what age should a child start a hip surveillance program or uh, be involved? Or is it yeah. up to the parents, up to the doctors? Where well, do you go?
1: That's a great question. And anecdotally, I can tell you when we asked our providers about that, almost 50% of the providers felt that the first x-ray should be when a patient has symptoms. But If you think about that, that's kind of backwards. And if we're waiting for a child to have symptoms, we're not really practicing hip surveillance and being proactive. We're more practicing a reactive strategy because the child's already symptomatic. And so we've kind of missed the window for intervention. So what we recommend is that most or all children with at least a diagnosis of CP or a suspected diagnosis of CP, or neuromuscular condition, obtain an AP pelvis x-ray prior to the age of two. And we feel this is a a good baseline surrogate x-ray and timeline to get one. The reality is if you present to an orthopedic surgeon at age four, you just get an x-ray then. But if you have the opportunity to get an x-ray before the age of two, that's what we would recommend.
2: And then do you I mean, obviously, if a child has, if the hip dysplasia has, has progressed um, uh, far enough and it continues to progress and it's causing problems, there's um, more than likely going to be a surgical intervention. What are your thoughts on on any preventative measures such as standing? Do, in in your opinion, do they seem to help? Do they seem to slow down the progression?
1: Yeah, so it seems like standing does help. And there is some literature that supports that standing has many benefits for children with neuromuscular disease. So I think standing can help in terms of bone mineral density. It's been shown to help with GI and digestive system. And then also there's been some evidence to support that it has been helpful in terms of driving some femoral acetabular remodeling uh, to try and help mitigate or prevent neuromuscular hip dysplasia. I think the important thing to recognize is while standing is of value and it can help, just because you put a child into a standard doesn't mean there isn't going to be a problem with their hips. So it's not strong enough to limit the need for surveillance and the possibility
2: of need for an intervention at some point in the future. Have you seen kids with neuromuscular hip dysplasia that that you would, like, are there instances uh, where you would not use a standing program?
1: I don't think so. So I think one of the things that maybe you're getting to, but I don't know, is is that often what happens is as a hip becomes subluxated or starting to get out of the socket, Parents and practitioners often will say, "Well, you're, you know, you're going to need hip surgery now," and then they're worried, so they stop standing. And it may not be that the standing is causing any pain for the child, but just because the radiographic picture looks worse, standing has been uh, put on hold. And what I typically would say is that just because the radiograph doesn't look great isn't a contraindication for standing. And so. I think it's important to continue to stand unless a child is really upset and symptomatic because of their standing. I think there's lots of value in standing to try and help improve overall hip health, so to speak.
0: We now interrupt this podcast with a word from our sponsor. The Bantam Medium has multiple options available to make transfers more manageable. The swing away knees are a great example. With the push of a button, the knee pads swing away providing more room for transfers are easily put back into place and lock into position. Multi-adjustable knee pads are independently adjustable in height plus or minus three inches and width so you can find the perfect setting even when dealing with asymmetries or tightness. For more information about the Bantam Medium and to schedule your free product demonstration, Go to easystand.com. Now back to the podcast. Getting back to the hip surveillance program, with the AP x rays, is there a line or value of migration percentage or how much it c- increases that causes severe concern?
1: Yeah, those are, there's a lot of questions. And if I could get my scribble book out, i draw some drawings for you. So in general, there are, on a plain x-ray, there are two lines that we draw to help guide us. One is called Hilgenreiner's line, and the other one is called Perkins line. Hilgenreiner's line runs horizontal to the pelvis, straight through the triradiate cartilage, um, and Perkins runs perpendicular to Hilgenreiner's line on the outside edge of the acetabulum. So those are are two baseline li- lines that we will use when we're making radiographic measurements. And like I said before, we measure what proportion of the femoral head is inside Perkins line, and what proportion of the femoral head is outside Perkins line, and then we present it as a ratio, or as a pardon me, as a percentage. <laughs> so normally, like uh, assuming Doug, your hips are normal, uh, your migration percentage would be about 10 or 15 percent. And in kids with CP or any kind of neuromuscular hip dysplasia, we get a little bit concerned based on the literature that's been done by Freeman Miller and his group that shows if your migration percentage is between 30 and 60 percent and you have at least two years of growth remaining, that your risk of further progression of hip subluxation is increased. Around 60%. And if your migration percentage is greater than 60% and you have at least two years of growth remaining, there is about a hundred percent chance that the displacement will continue on to a hundred percent or full dislocation. Now, those studies have guided kind of where we create our lines in the sand in terms of who fits into a surveillance program, and also when do you think about doing intervention based on what's been shown in the literature in terms of creating thresholds like 60% or something like that. What we know from some population-based studies though is that in general, those children who are GMFCS level four and five, like we talked about before, are at the greatest risk of progressive subluxation or deterioration of their X-rays. And on general, GMFCS level four kids will have about a 4% worsening of the migration percentage per year, and GMFCS level five children have about a 10% worsening of their migration percentage over a year. So we use those two numbers to help guide us so that sometimes if you're Having a slightly different radiograph and the x-ray looks a little bit different, it very well may be that we've just, you know, it may be just a positioning difference. And so it's really important that when you're looking at radiographs over time that you have consistent positioning of the x rays so that if there is a real change that's happening, that it's a true change as opposed to a positioning error. So that was a lot long-winded answer. I apologize.
0: No, thank you so much. It fills in a lot of gaps. You were mentoring the NP and measuring. What do you feel about the Hip Scream app? And is it applicable for therapists or parents and therapists? Or do you think it's too much information in too little knowledge hands? Uh,
1: you know, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, there's not always. You know, we don't have a lot of resources similar to that out there and that are available for providers, therapists and parents. And so it's a little tricky to get used to at the beginning. But I think it's it's quite intuitive and it's also quite valuable because it you can like take the grid and superimpose that onto your x-ray and really get a quick and dirty Answer of whether or not there is a problem that needs referral. So, parents can look at it, providers can look at it. So, I think it's actually a pretty good tool. And the content that's in there, in addition to that, is really just some scanned in PDFs that are available in in other places. So, I think the main goal for the uh, HIP screen is really just how portable the grid is and how transferable it is to whatever radiographs you have.
0: Thank you. I've actually, it does take a little bit of practice. I've used it myself. And the first couple of times, there was no way that the migration percentage was what I came up with. So with practice, I think you get better.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: Like anything, and
1: I think maybe for me is a bit easier because I know what I'm doing. And I think that if you, not saying you don't know, Marianne, what you're doing, but I'm just saying if you're not as comfortable with looking at x-rays and measuring x-rays, it could be a little bit time consuming, and there could be some reliability issues. But I think that overall, the results of comparing using the hip screen to not using the hip screen have shown that it is a superior instrument.
2: Dr. Shore, can you talk a little bit about surgical interventions? I know a lot of pediatric orthopedic surgeons are using the hemiepiphysiodesis or guided growth procedure to prevent dislocation in kids with the GMFcs four or five. Are you guys doing a lot of those in boston? if if so, what kind of results are you seeing?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the application of guided growth in pediatric orthopedics over the last two decades has really exploded. And maybe over the last five years within, neuromuscular children, our indications and our applications for guided growth have really grown. And so I think primarily where most of us are using guided growth right now is actually around the knee for knee flexion contracture management. And we have definitely started to do some guided growth proximally. Uh, About 10 years ago, when I came back from Australia, I was doing some growth modulation that I learned from Professor Graham, but it was using, not using a screw, but creating a passageway, basically, with a tap and a drill to stimulate some bone healing and create a tether that basically drove the hip into the socket, which is effectively what a guided growth screw is doing around the hip. I think the reality is is that this technique is exciting. It has a lot of potential. We still haven't really figured out who are the kids that it works best in versus who are the kids that it doesn't necessarily work well in. And I think that probably has to do with the age of insertion of the screw and how abnormal the geometry is to start with. But I think there is some value in guided growth, and it's it's still an intervention that we are working on expanding our indications and trying to dose that surgery most appropriate.
0: The other surgeries, the more involved, like the osteotomies, do you find there's an indication of how you can predict whether it'll be successful or not or have to be revised?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think your best shot with any surgery is your first shot. So you wanna try and get it as close to good on your first go around, because every time you go back, it's just harder and harder to make it better. So those are just some general principles. You know, what tends to, uh, if we quote some of the data that we looked at here in Boston, we found that the risk of needing revision surgery was greatest if you were under six years of age. So we try and use that age as a cutoff for us. So we try and really think twice before we do femoral osteotomies in kids that are under six in particular under four because we think that the risk of needing repeat surgery later on down the road is so great in those really young children so that that's kind of like how we that's kind of how we we kind of manage our practice so I, I think if we can I try and tell parents if I can avoid hip reconstruction surgery till the age of eight I'm really happy but some kids have progressive subluxation, which makes it hard to wait till eight years of age.
0: I have a feeling we could go on for hours, but I want to recognize your time, Dr. Shore.
1: Oh, thank you. I, you know, I think that what I would say for those who are listening, that hip surveillance is very important for neuromuscular children. The reason why it's so important is that hip disease is silent so that the hip can slowly progress and, and come out of the socket without the child really showing any symptoms. And so if we wait till the child is clearly in pain and discomfort, our reconstruction options are much limited. And so trying to be proactive and identify these hips, which are at risk or subluxating before they become too symptomatic is a real goal for everybody so that we can improve outcomes for these children. And then the other part of it is, is that in North America and particularly in the United States, The therapists that are listening to this call, you guys are really the foot soldiers here. You do all the hard work and the heavy lifting. We can't really do what we do as orthopedic surgeons without without the help of therapists. So just wanna give a shout out to the therapists and for them to recognize that for hip surveillance to really work in United States, we really need to leverage our therapy colleagues to try and help us with this. So thank you very much.
0: Dr. Shore, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to spend with us. I think the information that you provided us is going to increase the knowledge of hip surveillance for both therapists and parents who listen to this podcast. And hopefully we can get to the point where we don't have to do salvage or reconstruction surgery. Don't wanna put you out of a job, but there's other things. So thank you again. Thank you, Doug, for co-hosting today. And please join us for our next installment of Positioning 365 Beyond Seating. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ultimate Medical, the home of Easy Stand, Activate, and Medical Positioning.